For our second message today, we have a sermon from Mr. Matthew Steele on being good or being God. Mr. Steele. Thank you, Reg. Good afternoon. Good to see everybody. I saw most of everybody like a week ago. Less than a week ago. Um, my, my wife told me that, Terry uh, had told her, that my mom is listening in online. So, hi, Mom. She's uh, probably checking up, make sure we're alive, because, you know, with the feast schedule and so on, we're not able to, uh, to call her like we normally do. But we are here. A few days ago, I was watching a uh, really interesting video. Uh, it was an interview conducted by a well-known political um, commentator and podcaster. Um, and he was interviewing a well-known Christian apologist. And they were, uh, it was a really interesting conversation. They were talking a lot about faith and religion and, and society and evolution versus, you know, um, the Christian worldview and so on. It was a really fascinating um, interview, and, and if you're interested, I, I, can, I can tell you the, the details of that later. But, you know, as they asked the, and answered the questions, they were just, these are very intelligent people, very educated, have really interesting questions and really interesting answers. And, you know, you're listening to this and you're thinking, Man, how do they even know to ask these questions? They're, they're really intelligent people. They were talking deeply on transcendental issues, on metaphysical issues, on materialistic issues. And as I said, they're very learned, very educated. And, of course, there's no criticism with that. Uh, and I don't want this, this message at all to come across as a criticism <clears throat> of, their, of their education because it is really, really good. But as I was listening uh, to this discussion, they came to a question. <clears throat> um, this renowned Christian apologist uh, started to, to answer. And, and it was well-reasoned, thought out. Um, it was detailed but maybe longer than it should have been. Because as I heard the question, I was like, oh, well, it's, it's this thing right here. And then he proceeded to talk for about another 10 minutes answering the question. And the question they were trying to answer was this. <clears throat> Why is it necessary for God or for a moral lawgiver to exist in order for me to be a good person? Let me ask that again. Why is it necessary for God, for a moral lawgiver to exist in order for me or for any of us to be a good person? And, you know, they asked this question <coughs> in response to essentially a theoretical debate uh, because obviously there were no participants there. And these two individuals essentially have the same worldview. And it was in response to the kinds of questions that they get 
when they're speaking in public, when they're giving public presentations uh, and educating uh, people that have an opposing worldview. Question was response to the argument that there must be a moral lawgiver in order for there to be a definition of what is good, of what is right, of what is wrong. <coughs> we may not necessarily disagree with that. The answer to this question was, as I said, I felt it was intelligent, but in the end, it was unsatisfying. There was lots of great points, but it was not a satisfying answer. So, why is it necessary for God to exist in order for me to be a good person, for you to be a good person? Well, we could make the arguments about how we define good. And in fact, in, in his, one of his answers, he, he brings this up and he says, well, what is good? You know, you can go to different parts of the world and the definition of good is different, I think Art touched on this earlier, than, than what is in another part of the world. For example, he cited the practice that used to be in India where a loyal wife would throw herself on the funeral pyre of her husband to show what? Her love? Her insanity? I don't know. To us, that doesn't look good, does it? But to them, it was considered good to do that. Frowned upon if you didn't do that. So what is the definition of good? Well, they said, of course. But well, we have to come to an absolute moral law that sits above everything else that we would look at as a law, as a principle, as a definition of good. Something that sits above human reasoning. So, we could dig into that, couldn't we? And spend all day long just studying that part of the question. <clears throat> but I want to skip all of those arguments and get down to the real central point of the question. And that central point goes to the very heart of what it means to be a human being. <clears throat> Inside this question is an assumption that the objective of a moral law is to make the doer good. You realize that, right? Inside this question is the assumption that the objective of a moral law is designed to make the doer good. Now, it might be surprising to some to realize that that is not the objective of a moral law. Sounds a little odd, doesn't it? It's a moral law, of course it's designed to make the doer good. But we'll get into that. The moral law of God has the side effect of making someone uh, engage in goodness of suppressing evil in that individual's life. But it is only a side effect. The critical thing that the law of God is in fact doing is changing the nature of the person following. Changing the nature. The object of humanity, the objective of humanity, of being good, of being human, is not the purpose of our existence at all. Because we are supposed to be something else than what we are now. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 24, 
after God had prepared the physical world, after he had made this safe environment for us to live in, for all the creatures that he was going to create, this atmosphere, this earth with water and, and the ability to sustain life, after he did all of that, he created two sets of beings, essentially two groupings of beings. Now this is a simplified version of the kinds of creatures that we have on the earth. But in reality, there's two groupings of beings. One set of beings that were not made like him. And another set of beings that are made like him. Pretty simple. In verse 24, he says, then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Notice the repetition. The repetition. God made all these creatures to dwell on the earth according to its kind. It's repeated at least, I think, three times. Repeated. This concept that he's recreating or he's creating these creatures after their own kind. There was a defined set of parameters, wasn't there, for these creatures. When they reproduced, they did so according to these parameters. Now, mankind had known about DNA at the time of the writing of the scriptures, maybe that may have been in there. But we know, don't we, that animals reproduce according to their kind because of the encoding of the DNA that is in their, their genome. So cows, oddly enough, produced cows. Surprising. Sheep produced sheep, birds, birds, dogs produced puppies for us to play with. And we like that, don't we? But even those puppies grow up to be gods, just like their kind. But then we come to this very different sort of being, the last being that is made by God and is made differently. There's no language that says that it is according to its kind. I want you to notice that. Because this being is not of its own kind. God did not create a new animal type out of his own imagination, like he did with all the other critters that we have on the earth. Why was that? Why didn't he just create a creature and call it mankind? Why didn't he just create something of itself, brand new, unique, very different from all the other creatures that have been created? Well, he did, and he didn't. The reason he didn't is because he simply already had a template. He already had a template from which to make mankind. Now, I know this seems relatively simplistic, but it's important for us to remind ourselves of the difference between these two groups of beings. He said in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. There was no reason to draw up blueprints, as it were. I'm sure he obviously did in the, in the specifics of the human genome. But it was based on a template that he already had. 
God created everything in the universe. The stars, the planet, this earth, the fish, the birds, the creatures that walk upon it. Great creatures, powerful creatures, lions and elephants, creatures in the ocean. And he created delicate creatures like swans, hummingbirds. He created just this amazing array of, of creatures. All the way down to the creepy ones that we like to swat with our shoes. He made just an amazing set of creatures. He even made some that look a little bit like us, too. And maybe sometimes creatures that have more intelligence than others. You know, we can, we can tell that, that the nature of those, those creatures. We made creatures that have all kinds of different intelligences and elements to them. But there's only one creature that bears his likeness. There's only one creature that he said, I am going to make these look like me. That is special. That is incredibly unique. That is why, isn't it? It's such an affront. That's fundamentally why it's an affront for one of us to kill one of us. To abuse one of us. To enslave one of us. Because we are made in the image of God. That is why murder is wrong. That is why slavery is something that we reject it. That is why we are so special and unique. We're not just a reproduction after some created time. We're made in the image of God. We forget about that. We go around our day. We forget about that we personally are created in God's image. And the people that we get mad at on the road, on the way to work, on a Friday morning like yesterday, are also made in the image of God. God said, <clears throat> he said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the sea and over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And it goes without saying. Both are made in the image of God. Woman is not made in the image of man. Woman is made in the image of God. Just as man did. Then God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There is no other creature that God gave this authority to. None. It's only us. We only have the capacity to do all of this. There are creatures, like I said earlier, that even look a little like us, right? They have their eyes in a similar place and a nose, or you know, we call them monkeys and apes and so on. They are not like us. It's evident that they are not like us. There are creatures that shape their environment. And I remember seeing a documentary one time in this small little bird that creates patterns in the sand. Kind of gets away all the, the sticks and the leaves and cleans it up and creates this amazing pattern in the sand. And you're like, wow, 
shaping its environment. That's an intelligent creature. And it's just doing it to attract a mate. It's not doing it in the way that man would do it. And even then, when we see traits that are hmm, a little like maybe the way we, we humans do things, we're, we're fascinated by, by that in creation because it's rare, isn't it? There is no creature like us made in the image of God with our abilities and with our responsibilities. But that's not where the creative process ended, is it? didn't just end with the creation of man and God's physical likeness. With every other creature, with every other created being, they're sent their way. Go reproduce after your kind. And what do they do? They go and reproduce after their kind. And if it's in their genome to chew the grass, they go chew the grass. If it's there in their genome to go hunt down something and kill it, they do that too. They just follow their nature. is not the case with us. In chapter 2 and verse, uh, verse 15 of Genesis, it says, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, for the day you, you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And the story begins. Now, we can certainly get lost in all of the different things that this passage represents. If the fruit of the tree, did the fruit of the tree really do something? Or was it psychological? Right. We could have an argument over that, couldn't we? Whether or not the fruit actually did something. Or was it the change in man by his action? that caused about this, this path of sin and death? Or was it a process of disobeying the commandments of God that caused that? We could really dig in deep in there. But for today, I want to just make a simpler point. As soon as man was created after God's own image, God took him and placed him in a garden. Then what did he do? What did God do as soon as he put him in the garden? Blessed him, but before that, he gave him a commandment. Right. He gave him a moral law, didn't he? Boom. Right off the bat. Which of the other critters did he give a moral law to? None. Did not give any other creature a moral law. Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A commandment, a law, a moral law from a moral lawgiver to the only creature bearing the image of God. There's no account, as I said, of him saying this to the cow or the goat. And you know, the goats will eat anything, right? So you better believe that the goats will eat the fruit that falls from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, right? Or did they know just not to eat that? 
was it just programmed in them? But either way, I'm pretty strong in saying he didn't give them a commandment. Don't eat this. Presumably all those creatures either just could eat it or just didn't eat it. Either way, the only creature that bore the image of God was the only one given a moral law. Now, let me ask you, did God give this law to man if moral laws are only for making Why did God give us this law? Why did he give Adam this law right after he was created? Right after he was put in the Garden of Eden? Why did he give him a moral law? If moral laws are really only for making us good. After all, when God created everything, including man, he said it was good. Right? In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 31, it says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Miad tab. I thought that was a funny phrase in the Hebrew. Miad tab. Exceedingly good. Including man. If man's already good, why does he need a moral law to help him be good? You know, we're probably thinking, okay, the man's good. Why did God have to go and give us a law to break? Why did he have, why couldn't he have just left it right there? He didn't have to give us that law, did he? To make us be good, we were already good. Well, that's similar to what Paul said in Romans, isn't it? Romans chapter 7 and verse 9. He says, I was alive once without the law. So was Adam, wasn't he? Before God gave him that commandment for him to break, he was good. Paul said, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. God gave that law to Adam. Don't eat of this or you'll die. It was for life. And then it killed him. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. The commandment is good. The moral law of God is good. And God gave this moral instruction to Adam. To mankind for good. Don't eat of this or you will die. And he ate anyway. Why did he do that? And let's not deceive ourselves. Let's not of any of us say, well, I wouldn't have eaten. Right? We would have eaten. We would have eaten. We wouldn't have been any different. We would not have chosen any different. So why is it that Adam and Eve both ate of this fruit? Well, as I just said, they had a choice. They had a choice. Why did we 
Why did they have a choice? Why do we have the intellectual ability to choose, to make choices? Why do we have this? Not because we ate of the fruit. I always find that interesting. You know, it says, don't eat of this fruit, the knowledge of good and evil. They were able to choose evil before they ate the fruit. Almost seems like one of those science fi, you know, sci-fi paradoxes. Why did they have the ability to choose? Because of how they were made. They were made in the image of God. We have the ability to choose because God does. It's interesting, isn't it? We have the ability to choose because God does. We're made in his image. Think about it. He could have made us like every other creature. There's plenty of creatures on this earth that do not sin. And they outnumber it, don't they? Every other creature on the earth could have made us like that. But that's not how we were made. The moral law is only given to a being that has a choice. Wouldn't be any point otherwise to a being that has free will. And that raises all kinds of deep questions. We like to think that God, by his nature, is good and cannot do evil. He just absolutely cannot do evil. But that's a little simplistic, isn't it? If we are like God, having a choice, and we are made in his image, then he must also, in that same way, be like us. Why else would Satan have tried to tempt Jesus? In Luke chapter 4 and verse, uh, verse 1, after Jesus had been baptized, it says, Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing. And afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus said to him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And then the devil, taking him up on the high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Why would Satan bother to do anything? Why was he trying to do any of this if it's not possible that Jesus the Son of God, God in the flesh, could not be tempted. Why would he, why would he even try? It would no, make no sense at all for Satan to have bothered with any of this. If it was impossible for Jesus to have chosen anything other than good. Now, some might say, well, Jesus was in the flesh, wasn't he? That's different. That's different than, than when he was a 
all-powerful God, no longer constrained by a, a human body and, and human weaknesses of the flesh. Okay, let's say that's the case. For argument's sake, what do we do with the final temptation that Jesus responded to? In verse 9 it says, Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said unto them, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That, that's a really interesting statement at the end of that, isn't it? Until an opportune time. He wasn't done tempting Jesus. Let's not think that this was it and Jesus had won. Satan was going to come back at another time and tempt him again. But then there's that line that Jesus quotes. And he's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.16 when he said, As the law says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. It's one of those laws that's only given to beings that look like God, that are made in the image of God, that can choose between good and evil. He said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Why would that law be given? if it was not possible for him to be tempted? Why would that law be given if it was not possible for God to be tempted? Well, as I said, we were made in his image and we can be tempted. Then it also, I think, stands to reason that that's where we got our nature from, is from God, we're made in his image. And so also it would seem that God can be tempted. The difference is that God is good because he always chooses to be good. He always chooses good. And we can be grateful for that. He always chooses to be good. If it was automatic, then how great would he really be? If it was impossible for him to sin, then why is Jesus worthy of our praise? What did he really overcome? If it was impossible for him to sin. And if it was impossible for him to sin, and we are made in the image, then how is it that we have fallen. If we were made in the image of God, then why are we capable of sinning? Again, I believe the difference is that God is good because he always chooses to be good, to do good, to execute righteousness. It's his will, his character. He is good. We have not always chosen that. Indeed, our fallen condition, we really could never choose that. 
The Apostle Paul makes this more understandable for us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. And what is it that the law could not do? Make us good, right? It cannot make us good. As we've already seen. It cannot make us good. God did make us good. By sending, it, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh. But according to the spirit. We are made good. We are made to be able to be good. Because God has planted his spirit, his nature, that always chooses the good into us. That's how we are made to be like him. He is giving us his nature, his character, the quality that makes him good. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. It is impossible to be good without a moral law or even with a moral law by just that law alone. Something else has to change in our nature. He says, so then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If the moral law that God has given us was supposed to make us good, then it has failed, hasn't it? I mean, just think about our recent history, the last few hundred years. The civilization of man, the Western world, has had God's law in, it, in their own language available to be read by anyone. And we have committed some of the most heinous crimes in history during that period. That law didn't just make us good. And we know personally, ourselves, that even with this law, even with the commandments that we've been given, as James tells us, we can still get drawn out by our own lusts and be sent. If the moral law was supposed to just make us good, it's failing. And we lose sight of the whole purpose of the law in the first place if we think that that was the primary reason for it. Paul continues, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. We're something different now, aren't we? We're something new. We're not just physically made in the image of God. We are something else, something more. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. His righteousness in us. But the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I always love the imagery of that, putting to death the deeds of the body. How do we do that? We follow the moral law of God. We do the opposite of what the body does. Because the body cannot follow those laws of God. So the law of God was made for us to choose. And we chose poorly, didn't we? We chose evil and not good. But now, through Christ Jesus, we get to choose again and again and again to do the good. It's a process. Christ Jesus living in us enables us to choose the good. And maybe sometimes that flesh, that war within us, pushes us and we choose the wrong. Christ covers that and enables us to choose the good again. To keep working at choosing the good and allowing his character, his nature, to dictate our behavior. Because he chooses to be good and to do good. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So now we get to this familiar concept for us, don't we? This familiar concept, the idea of sonship, being a child of God. When God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, it didn't stop in the garden. It didn't stop there. Man was not complete at that moment. And we know that because God gave us a moral law. He gave us something to choose, to improve with, to choose the good. But unlike all the other creatures, we're just not these mindless creatures that follow their DNA. We have to choose between good and evil. Christ Jesus came to redeem us from our choice, from our choice of evil. And he gave us the opportunity to become like God by being allowed to choose anew, to choose good this time instead of evil. Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified. Yep. I don't know if you're, you've thought about this, but I've often th- thought about these passages, and they're, they're not always easy to think about. But I've, I've often thought about the creation story and the fall uh, of mankind, as, as we often call it, as though that there was two ways, that there was two paths that Adam and Eve could have followed. There was the good way of obedience and faith, and then there was the way of rebelliousness and sin, and that Adam and Eve just chose 
the wrong path. And that, at that moment then, the trajectory of the human race was sent down the wrong path. Now, that, that's often been in my head. But is that true? Is that really what was before them? If Adam had chosen not to eat of the fruit at that moment, if Eve had not chosen to eat of that fruit at that moment, they had rejected Satan and said, get out of here. Would he have just gone away and never come back? Well, no. We know his nature, don't we? And we know ours. <laughs> he was going to come back and try and try and try again. Until what? Until we broke that moral law that God gave us. And then caused our own death. It almost seems like a big setup. Doesn't it? We were never getting out of this alive. And I don't know all the answers. Because a lot of this is above my pay grade. But all of this started before man was ever created. In fact, we know from scripture that this whole creation, this recreation, was after a rebellion. It was after sin had already entered into existence. And so maybe in some way, this had to play out. And there was no other path. This was going to be the way it was going to be. If that wasn't the case, I don't know what else to think. But I think by the imagery that we have of Satan being willing to come back and try against Jesus again and again and again. And remember, that temptation wasn't just at the end of the 40 days, was it? It was all the way through the 40 days. And then we get the details of the last big three. Temptation. And you better believe Satan was there when Jesus was on the stake. That was his last moment to make this fail. And Jesus good. He chooses the good every time. And that's why through him, in us, we can choose that good. The Spirit of Christ Jesus in us, the Father living in us, creating a new type of being. The being that they wanted to create all along. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I've said it before. You know, if we are done when we accept Jesus as our Savior, if we're done when we go into the waters of baptism, we come out, we receive the laying on of hands of the Holy Spirit. If we're all done, then why are we still here? Why do we still have to live this life and continue through hardships and struggles and compete against that old man? Why do we still have to do that? 
Why are we not just whisked away into the kingdom of God? It has to do with following the moral law of God. About building in us the process of choosing the good every time. Not out of our own strength, but out of the nature of Christ Jesus in us. Turning back to Romans, <clears throat> uh, chapter 8 and verse 18. I know we read this scripture a lot, but it, it's, it's so important for our Christian world. It's so important for us to just continue to remember and read. And it's good for us to remember. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. What was that futility? What do you think that futility was? The whole creation was made subject to futility. It was made subject to the notion that man could keep the moral law of God. It's futile. Paul told us, because of this weakness in the flesh, we were not able to do it. And what are we put in charge of? Creation. We're put in charge of this creation. God said, all of these critters, everything that I have made is under your hand. The whole creation was put under a futile bunch of humans, wasn't it? Flesh that cannot submit to God, cannot obey the law because it is weak. And so the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. What's the hope? The hope is this his only begotten son, and enter into this world, enter into this flesh, and through his character, his nature, his nature of always choosing the good, it's a hope that he will redeem this world through us, through living in us. That is the hope. He said, because creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creation is redeemed through our redemption, through Christ in us, changing us finally into the image of God, fully created in his image. And so we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body. Now, broader Christianity completely misses this point. And I think that's why this Christian apologist's answer was so unsatisfying. Because the answer was simply because we are to be made into the children of that's the answer. We are in a womb. We're struggling for every ounce of growth. We're being buffeted around. And as we get stronger and bigger and more like Christ, 
just as a baby in the womb gets more squeezed and compacted and pushed around. The struggle almost becomes worse. For we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts and knows the mind of what the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good. There's that word again. For good. For those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We are not about just being good. We are about becoming God. That's the answer. The children of God made possible only through Christ Jesus in us. His spirit and the spirit of the Father. This in the end, isn't it? Isn't this the reason why they are worthy to be praised? Because they have saved us and are making us to their children.